Now, if you are Venezuela, Saudi Arabia or BP, the year has not started well. Something extraordinary has been happening to the oil price. Oil prices have collapsed. The International Energy Agency says we're drowning in crude, which raises the question, how can those in the business community keep their heads above water? Mr. Gage, you are now putting another billion dollars of your own money uh, into green innovation. Well, the returns will come uh, partly through the benefits to society, and so... Uh, well, good afternoon, everybody. Today, we're here to announce America's Clean Power Plan, a plan two years in the making, and the single most important step America has ever taken in the fight against global climate change. But I am convinced that no challenge pose a greater threat to our future. Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Off the Charts podcast. I'm your host and executive director of the Energy Policy Institute at UChicago, Sam Ori. For the past 15 years, the story in global energy markets has been China. Consumers and industry there fueled a rapid boom in oil demand beginning in 2004 that helped propel oil prices to historic levels for much of the decade that followed. In fact, the increase in Chinese oil demand between 2000 and 2015 was the equivalent of adding an extra one and a half Japans to the market. But even that pales in comparison to China's growth in coal consumption, which tripled between 2000 and 2014, accounting for 85% of global coal growth over that period. The result? Rapidly rising living standards and a burgeoning, burgeoning middle class, but also devastating levels of pollution that are now damaging human health and shortening lifespans. Now, in 2016, as China accelerates efforts to stem the environmental effects of its energy consumption, observers are turning their attention to, Ch to India and asking, is this going to be the next China? India today gets more than 70% of its electricity from coal, and it's opening one new coal mine per month. Over the next 25 years, the IEA expects it to add 900 gigawatts of power capacity, almost the size of the current U.S. grid, to meet rapidly rising demand. How much will be coal? what will be the implications, and what are the lessons for other developing nations? With me to discuss is Amir Jinnah. Amir, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Sam. So I thought I would start with this, which is a chart from the uh, 2015 World Energy Outlook from the IEA, and it shows per capita energy consumption in a, a bunch of different regions around the world, and uh, one of them is India. And so per capita energy consumption in India in 2013 was uh, a little bit less than than one ton of oil equivalent per capita. So let's call it uh, about a half a ton. And in the United States, I look up to the top and I see it's closer to seven. So you know we're something like you know more than ten, probably close to fifteen times uh, in terms of energy consumption. So you know what does that sort of tell us about where India is today and with a population of you know more than a billion people, you know where it's headed and as as uh, as the economy grows there and they try to sort of uh, fill that gap and rise energy consumption to to levels that are um, you know closer at least if not the same as uh, those in the U.S. and European Union. You know what does that sort of look like and what are the implications? Well, so what this means is that India is really at the beginning of its of the energy intensive phase of its development um, compared to where the U.S., where Western Europe is at the moment. And this has been one of the reasons why there is written into all the climate change negotiations this idea of common but differentiated responsibilities. So India is a country that needs to grow like every other country. We've needed energy to grow, energy to produce things, energy to make GDP. Um, but they, India, among other countries, have historically had very little contribution to climate change. 
And so we're trying to, we're looking at a world where there's countries that need energy to grow and have a right to develop in a way to increase the well-being of their people. Um, but we also don't want to destroy the, the environment. We don't want to, to change temperatures by too much. And so they are being, we're in a situation where the, the responsibilities for what we do about climate change going forward is resting more on the countries that have historically emitted a lot, like the U.S., uh, versus India, which needs to be given the space to grow. But given that the population is so large that the growth at the moment is, is the growth in CO2 emissions is so fast, I think in the last years, India became the, um, it had the highest growth rate of CO2 emissions of any country, even bigger than China. Um, given that it's growing so fast and growing so quickly, and that its population is projected to become, um, its population and its economy are projected to become the biggest in the world within the next 20 years. What India chooses to do and its path forward from here really determines the future of the atmosphere. So, uh, well, that's a sort of interesting comparison point, right? Um, that, you know, today the, the burden is more on the developed countries. Uh, but if you look forward, I mean, I, I was really struck by a, a, a one statistic in particular when I looked at the, the India component of the World Energy Outlook from last year, which was that uh, by 2040, the increase in, in capacity in India, uh, 900 gigawatts, basically uh, four-fifths the size of the current U.S. electricity grid. So, I mean, that's pretty astounding. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that is growth that I think, if you went back and looked, is probably, you know, even faster than some of the really rapid growth that we saw in China, which was, you know, to people in the energy space, what happened in China over the last decade was really like, uh, you know, sort of the defining uh, trend or the defining sort of geography of, of, of so many different things. And so when you look now and you, and you look at these IA forecasts, which if anything, I think tend to usually be a little, uh, you know, uh, overly conservative, things tend to happen a lot faster than what they, than what they project. That's a huge change. Yeah. A colossal change. Um, and the, the, the comparison to China is one I think that most people will be looking at uh, carefully at this point. So China's growth, as you mentioned, was just astounding in the last 20 years or so. Um, but as I mentioned, they, in terms of the growth rate of their emissions, they're, they're declining. It seems like they've um, potentially gone over the, the peak coal hump that they're going to um, the peak of coal growth that they're going to experience. And part of that is because of, um, as we see now, internal pressures on the government to try and move away from the high polluting sources because people are really starting to notice the negative effects as well as the positive effects. Um, and ironically, as they gain the, gain the positive effects, more income, etc., it gives them more of a voice to start talking about fighting against the negative ones. We'll probably see the exact same thing in India. Um, they are... Interestingly, they are committing to coal at the same time as they're committing to solar. They're, they've determined that they will increase their coal production. I think that the Indian national coal miner is already the biggest, it's the biggest coal mining company in the, on the planet. And they've committed to, to wean themselves off imports, try and produce more. They're really committing towards a, a coal intensive path. At the same time, they're talking about scaling up their solar to levels that aren't seen in other countries, um, 20, 30% of generation over the next 10, 15 years. Um, but that still results in a lot of extra emissions. They've made these big commitments, which I think are, are pretty incredible. And so uh, 175 gigawatts of wind and solar by 2022, of which 100 gigawatts is solar. It's pretty incredible. And you have a piece up in, uh, on Forbes.com uh, today talking a little bit about that. And, and, and we can talk 
some more about that, but, um, you know, arguing that, uh, or, or pointing out that the, the Indian government has argued that the costs have now become very competitive with coal. And so there's this potential to switch, but, but I am also struck by kind of the, the, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, talking out of both sides, right. Or the, or the embracing both. Uh, there is very much a. It seems in everything that you look at, there's a there's a reluctance to say we're we're transitioning toward these new fuels, even even as um, some of the big commitments that have been made are, um, you know, forty uh, percent uh, of the increase in generating capacity between now and 2040 will be carbon free. I mean, those are big commitments, but it almost seems like they're they're saying that, but hedging really hard on coal. And when you look at some of these things, uh, you know. I mentioned uh, earlier, and I saw that there was an NPR story toward the end of last year that talked about the pace at which they're expanding domestic coal production capacity, one new coal mine a month. I mean, that's those two things seem like they almost don't go together. Yeah. Well, coal as of now, so they've, the, the government has made this claim about how cheap solar is becoming and how cheap it might be over the next decade. But coal as of now is still the cheapest source of energy that we can imagine for expanding the grid. And Expanding the grid here is, it's not just based in India on, on economic arguments, it's based on strongly almost human rights arguments. So at, towards the end of last year, Prime Minister Modi said that he was going to electrify the remaining tens of thousands of villages that were without electricity, about 300 million people, um, and that they were going to do it over the course of 18 to 24 months. And so the first few months of 2016, they've actually electrified more villages than they had done in the previous five years combined. So the pace is going extremely quickly. And I think the reason why they're hedging a little bit is because they realize that this is about more than just um, energy in their economy. They're, they're trying to frame it as something about the rights and well-being of their population. And as we see now with, with temperatures, record-breaking temperatures all across India, there is a, a strong... Um, there's a strong argument to be made for the protective aspects of energy access so people need access to cooling and there's and that really helps people in terms of the the changes the climate change the climate impacts that we're seeing at the moment um, so for them time is not really on their side from that point of view they want to expand as quickly as they can and coal seems to be the way to do that in the near term and the same time it's not going to be something that's uh, really well appreciated by the rest of the the global climate change negotiating parties um, that China will be expanding this much. So, uh, but just to go back to the point that you started off with, I mean, I think that's worth emphasizing, right? That's pretty incredible. So when you talk, uh, or historically, when people have talked about uh, energy access issues globally, we talk about, you know, now it's, I think, 1.2 billion people globally without access to electricity. 300 million of them are in India with no access and probably a higher number with limited or intermittent access, very low access. Uh, and so over the next roughly year, uh, yeah, the Indian gov- the, 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 is a target of the Modi government to provide some level of access for all of those people. So 300 million people, almost the entire population of the U.S., yep. uh, to get access to some kind of, or some kind of access to electricity over the next year. Yeah. So it's not just about economic growth, uh, which is probably over the next, you know, uh, two decades going to provide its own source of, or, or, or serve as its own source of demand growth. But bringing all these additional folks online uh, has the potential to obviously be a huge source of demand growth. Yeah. And so they're doing this, uh, again, quickly. The, the caveat there is that an electrified village doesn't mean that everyone gets access to electricity. It's the school, the clinic, government buildings, and about 10% of the households get it. So it, in a way, it can be still viewed as low energy access. Um 
but that's still a, a pretty big expansion. A and a lot of that will be coal. People. And a lot of that will, will be, be powered coal. by coal. Yeah. Now, the other thing that uh, I guess the other the other trend that sort of over, I've seen talked about quite a bit over the last couple of months is that much of the current coal generating capacity is from very antiquated facilities or antiquated plants. Um, so there's also this effort to, um, you know, to not only to build out the, the, the next generation of coal fleet, but to replace some of the older generation of coal fleet. Um, I mean, what is what's sort of the economics around that? I mean, how do these... What, does solar, does the, the six to eight cent kilowatt hour uh, solar compete with that or is coal still? Well, so as you as you mentioned before, the government are claiming that they're almost on parity. I think those claims are probably overstated um, and it might be wishful thinking to some extent, but currently without a, a price on carbon, without some kind of way to, to quantify what the externality is on how it's affecting everything other than just the the cost that it imposes on society beyond the um, just pure benefits from generation without that it's going to be really difficult to shift away from from coal it's quite it's quite simple and that's the that's the issue we're facing all over the world you know you burn I burn my ton of coal and it's going and it's affecting it's it's leading to increased infant mortality it's causing cardiorespiratory uh, mortality it's impeding people's lifestyle there's a lot of research showing all of these different things and even effects right down to kids performance at school is being hampered in india you've got some of the most polluted cities in the world um without really being able to quantify that and put a price on it to say that it's not just me gaining the benefit from burning this coal and the power it's me also having this this damaging effect on other parts of society without some price mechanism in there to correct that market failure it's going to be really difficult to shift away from coal as the cheapest source as it stands right now but and so you know you make this point in your in your piece on on forbes that the india is really going to be a key test case going forward uh, this has been the model this has been the, the the growth model uh for the for really you know the history of energy economics or the or, or the industrial world yeah uh cheap coal has fueled everything from the industrial original industrial revolution in the uk through you know to the us and western europe and, and china and now in india uh you have all these developing countries looking to what's happening in india and how india moves forward at the same time that india is is trying to grapple with some of the climate consequences you mentioned the the human health consequences which have been um pretty astounding uh, Delhi now the most polluted city in the world. Some of that's from transportation, but uh, yeah. you know some of it's also from industry and coal. Um, what are the? How, I mean, how, what are the, what is the lesson that other developing countries you know that you think will take from India, or is it sort of do we? Is it the next ten years are really going to be what what sort of tells the story? I think it's probably the next ten years that'll tell the story. It's it's a little bit to get a little bit more speculative. The, it does seem to be on the cusp of these two paths, one of which is much more carbon intensive than the other one. Um, and for for the past more than two decades now, since the, the UNFCCC climate negotiations have been ongoing, there's always been this idea of the poorer countries' right to emit, their right to develop, their right to grow in the same way, that they shouldn't be restricted in their ability to pump pollution into the atmosphere just because some other countries got rich off doing that. Um, but if everyone were, were to do that, if we were to all get up to the, the level of CO2 emissions per capita that the U.S. is at, we would have very little atmosphere left, uh, atmospheric space left to kind of account for all of that CO2. And so because of the sheer magnitude of India, the pace that it's growing at, I think that's what makes it different. 
So there's lots of other countries that have low energy access and are high growth at the moment, some of which would have large populations like Nigeria, some with much smaller, Ethiopia, some others. Um, but because of the scale of India, because of how fast it's growing, that's what makes this a little bit different. And that's why it's important to make sure that it's important to watch the direction that it goes in. Because if it gets to go on the carbon intensive path, then it sets a strong precedent for the other countries who are kind of following close on its heels, the Nigerias and others. And so I guess, what are some of the challenges? I mean, it, the, the commitments that India has made are pretty, you know, are, are, seem like they're on sort of the right track, the 40% carbon free generation by 2040. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the, again, going back to sort of the IEA, and the IEA is kind of skeptical of that in their in the in the outlook. They they basically assume that India won't meet that target. Yeah. Uh, so why is that? And how are they? Is IEA right? Are they too conservative? I, you know, I should say the I ask about whether too conservative in that regard because um, you know this has been a, a basically a criticism of IEA and some of you in the U.S. forecasters that they consistently underestimate the growth of solar. And I think you would find a lot of pro solar advocates who would say, oh, you know, the IA is being dismissive, but really India is going to hit this target and even and even then some as yeah. these as, as some of the 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 um, levelized cost of energy figures uh, continue to come down. I think one of the one of the reasons why there tends to be conservatism in in those projections is because people aren't and by people I mean researchers, I mean I mean everybody we're not we don't have too good of a handle on the extent to which solar prices can decline through learning by doing, through increases in, in efficiency of, of production of, of those technologies. Um, and that's a pretty active area of research and people are trying to get a handle on it. But you kind of want to err on the side of conservatism. You don't want to assume that you can get incredibly cheap solar if we're unsure of how we're going to get from the current prices down to something cheaper than coal. And but, uh, so it's one of the reasons why you would see that. Um, one other thing, just to, to make a distinction about, about India, so they've made these really strong commitments. On their carbon emissions side, they have committed to a 30%, I think, reduction in carbon intensity, which sounds all good on the surface, but if essentially that is, that saying, that is them saying we are going to emit more CO2. That, that's just the because carbon intensity. Grow. Yeah. So that's the, the amount of carbon produced per unit of, of GDP, per unit of production. Um, so they're, they're stating that, you know, emissions are going to increase a lot. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's a matter of speculation about which, which path they go down. Part of it probably, and I think the thing that they're very um, concerned with is how financing occurs for the, for the renewables technologies. So there are these provisions written into, I mean, every iteration probably of every agreement that went that has gone into the the UNFCCC process about technology transfer fund transfer for for mitigation to go to poorer countries um but the actual targets for that the amount of money which is going to go towards that and the commitments that are required and whether they're going to be enforced is still pretty fluffy um i think currently in bond there's meetings to try and really put teeth into the paris accord and and Financing is one of the big discussions, so we'll see what comes out of that in the next few days. But India has a strong, it's, I think, been trying to make the argument all along that in order to go down this renewables path, it can't do it by itself, and it really needs kind of global assistance to that extent. It needs to have the cheap technology um, and technology transfer in order to make it viable to go down this path, which is better 
from a global point of view, but might not be as good for them if they were to take that decision unilaterally. But as you point out, it's not really, I mean, it's not just technology issues. So the, so IEA has pointed out some of these other potential challenges, land acquisition, the financing. Um, you know, I know there are real questions about how much of this can really be financed over the next, you know, X number of decades. I guess that's sort of where the, the USAID potentially could even come in, not just on the technology side, but also on financing all of this. Yeah, very much so. Um, so I guess, you know, where do you see, is India the next China? Depends what you mean by is India the next China. Um, it's definitely going to be the next, it's going to be the next major economic and environmental story in the way that China dictated, China dominated every every story that we heard about coal consumption, about oil, about everything for the past past 10 years. India is looks like it's emerging to become that center of attention. Um, the the growth of population, the growth of the economy, just India is going to become one of the poles of the world, um, both in terms of the environment and in terms of just economic discussions for the next 10 years. Whether, it, whether we are talking about it in 10 years' time as a place where we're talking about the air apocalypse like we would talk about now in, in China, I think remains to be seen. They're at a point where the awareness, and we in general are at a point where the awareness about the negative effects of of CO2 emissions, both in terms of local pollutions and in terms of global pollutions. Um, we're more aware of that than ever. And whereas 10 years ago, China was embarking on this, this high emissions trajectory and this high period of extremely high growth, we didn't really know, um, or we had less information about all the negative consequences. There's less of an excuse now for the for us to not be aware of that for the Indian trajectory. Um, so I don't know. It will become the next center of attention, but whether it is something we talk about in these terms of it being uh, people choking on, on their own air and things like that remains to be seen. So I guess let me uh, just I kind of maybe wrap with a couple of political questions. It, this issue of energy access is not, I mean, it's not a new issue in India. No, we've been talking about this now for a long time. Uh, the Modi government seems to have commitments that are much different than what's been talked about before, and there's a there's a pace uh, of activity that's much different than what's happened before. Is this just a? Is it has it just been a matter of political will? I mean, what's different this time? Is the capacity really to address these issues higher? That's an interesting question, and I'm, I'm I can make my own my own speculations again about about whether there's political will but the truth is that the Modi government has been a lot more um populist in a lot of its policies than previous governments and so maybe that's it maybe it's just that it's this different government he's he's someone who made a, a big claim a big case about not coming from the traditional political elite um and being more connected to to the population at large. So maybe that's it. Maybe that's the reason why there's more of a focus this time. I think it's also coming at a time when India is on the verge of, of becoming the world's largest economy in the next 10, 15, et cetera, years. Um, and so there's that expectation there that they didn't really have before. So they, if they're going to grow to become um, something, some, one of the, the dominant economies on the planet, then I think they're thinking about themselves in the future and that they want to grow 
right. So there's always also this aspirational aspect to it that you can't have 300 million people who are living in the dark anymore when you are on the verge of becoming one of the world's largest economies. Right. And then I guess the other question I would ask is, you know, the comparison point of China to India is one that, you know, sort of frequently crops up in multiple different areas. And I think most Indians actually kind of despise that yeah, comparison. Yeah. But, you know, I think the other interesting area where, it, where it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, it provides an interesting kind of contrast is China has dealt with this issue with a, di- a completely different system of governance. And it's been in some ways a political risk for China. I think people would argue that uh, they've had to deal with some of the pollution issues because uh, there's there's kind of an, a, an implicit bargain that's being made between the population and the government that if we're not going to have a, you know, we're not going to have, uh, you know, a free government or a system, a free system of, of, of politics, um, you know, we expect to be taken care of pretty well. And if we're not going to be voting and we're not going to be having these things, we can't also be having, you know, slow economic growth and poisonous air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the Chinese government has been, has had that imperative, I think, in dealing with some of these issues. India, obviously, a completely different system. It is, uh, it is the, the, the world's, world's largest, largest democracy. democracy. <laughs> uh, is that a, is that a, is that an asset or a hindrance in this in many areas, it's 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 people have argued that it's it's kind of held them back from acting quickly, um, but I wonder if in this in this arena, it's made it it's made sort of the 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 voice of the people get to the government faster. Yeah, I mean, there's strong political economy ideas about about this about whether having a centralized government is good for some of these development type problems early on. Um, because you have limited number of resources and you have to say here are our priorities and stick to one and you can't kind of spread your resources around but um and maybe that so some people have probably argued that that's been a an, a hindrance to India that it has to be um it has to be beholden to every single one of its constituents and every single one of their problems um but it's I think probably India has now grown beyond the size where that should be too much of a consideration. I think it has the potential to help a lot because while in the past in the agricultural sector, you see some of these distortive subsidies that occur in agriculture, particularly related to energy, um, that persist because every government knows that if they remove this almost complete subsidy on energy for farmers that they won't get reelected. And so there's been some distortion that's been allowed to happen. But at the same time, their system of local government um, really does seem to allow for concerns of the constituents to be channeled up pretty high. At the same time, it's got this growing middle class. So there's demand in the city. So in Delhi, you now hear when, when you have a bad air pollution day, you have a lot of middle-class Indians on Twitter talking about how bad right. this is. And so there's a visibility to the problems that there wasn't before. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure. It's I a think much different dynamic. The same, yeah, it's a much different dynamic. Even though the challenges are the same, they're probably going to meet them in different ways. Um, and probably the growing pains will be a little bit different. Amir's piece exploring these issues in depth is up on Forbes.com. I encourage you to check it out. Amir, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. That's all the time we have for now. Make sure to subscribe to the Off the Charts podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including on our website at epic.uchicago.edu and at the iTunes store. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Sam Ori. Thank you.